As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, happy Monday. Believe it or not, one month until pitchers and catchers report to Grapefruit League and Cactus League complexes. We are almost there. This is the Athletic Baseball Show's Mailbag Edition. I'm Tim McMaster, as always, along with Ken Rosenthal. And one thing uh, about most of the big-name free agent signings early in the offseason is there's less rumors to dig into right now, but there's plenty of questions from fans about what the heck their team has been doing this winter. So we're going to get into that, Ken. Uh, but before we get into that kind of disgruntled fan, uh, what would you like to talk about today just to kick things off? Well, Tim, I had a lot of options going into today's show. I thought maybe we should talk about the Brian Reynolds trade market, but with the signing of Andrew McCutcheon, it looks less likely than ever that Reynolds will be traded before the deadline. It looks like the Pirates are going to try, at least for the first half of the season, and they haven't really been active in Reynolds' discussions anyway. They've set a high price, and they're not really eager to do anything. At least that's the way it appears. Things can change any moment, and I'm going to warn people of that. And I know some fans get annoyed at times when I say talks are fluid. Well, talks are fluid, and they can heat up. But my suspicion is that Brian Reynolds goes nowhere until the deadline. So that was one option. I thought, eh, not a great topic. Then I thought, how about Pablo Lopez? Wrote about him a little bit in my notes column on Monday. Mentioned that the Cardinals would be an obvious suitor. Two years of control. They've got four free agents in their rotation. They need someone like that. They've got the offense that the Marlins would require it back in any deal. But then I thought, eh, Pablo Lopez, he's not enough to carry the start of the show. And then I thought, of course, about Carlos Correa. We've talked a lot about him. We'll be talking a lot more about him in the years to come. But, ah, eh, we've talked enough about Correa. And then, this morning, on The Athletic, under the byline, see Trent Rosecrans, there was a story about Reds president, Phil Castellini. Now, you might remember Phil Castellini from last opening day, opening day 2022. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't have heard of this guy. He is the son of the owner, but who cares? He's the team president. Doesn't do much. Well, last opening day, he gets asked on a TV station why the Reds should have faith, and he basically said, well, where else are you going to go? You got to root for us, and you have no other owners. We're the owners. And if we go to another market, well, be careful what you wish for. You wouldn't want us leaving, would you? So that was the last we heard of Phil Castellini. And then on Saturday, according to Trent's article, he spoke to an organization called Rosie Reds. And Rosie is an acronym for Rooters Organized to Stimulate Interest and Enthusiasm. And it was founded as a woman's only group, but it hasn't been only women since 1967 when it was founded. This is a fan group. Castellini speaking to the fan group, and apparently in this age of cell phones, some people were recording his comments. Imagine that. So it starts off that he doesn't know what Rosie stands for as an acronym. As Trent reports, there was a groan from the crowd, and as Trent also reports, it only got worse from there. What Castellini said, among other things, is that the Reds operate like a nonprofit. That's a laughable comment. I'll get to it in a minute. He also called baseball an industry in crisis, and he mentioned an increased number of teams that are out of contention on opening day. Now, this is a sport going back to Bud Selig that is trying to sell hope and faith, that knows it has a big market, small market problem, constantly trying to address it, not to anyone's satisfaction. It's a problem that cannot be solved, as we've discussed on numerous podcasts before. But when an owner comes out and basically says we have no chance, I just don't think that's probably something the commissioner's office welcomed. Now, the commissioner's office didn't comment. The Reds didn't comment. But Castellini, for the second time in really two years, actually the second time in about nine months, opened his mouth and said some very questionable things. The most questionable, in my opinion, was this nonprofit comparison. And there was a woman who, Trent quoted in the article, who has worked with nonprofits, who was offended by this statement, as any normal person would be. Baseball teams are not exactly nonprofit enterprises. Otherwise, people wouldn't be so eager to buy them. Now, we can debate how much money certain teams make and how much certain teams don't, etc. And because teams don't open their books, except for the Braves and the Blue Jays, the publicly owned companies, we don't know what exactly they make. The Braves, well, we know they're books and it looks pretty good it looks like they're doing okay so if you're a Reds fan waking up this morning and really if you're a baseball fan too you should be rather aggravated by what you read in Trent's article and then you might be asking the question well what can baseball do about this and the answer unfortunately is nothing Commissioner Rob Manfred can't take the team away from Bob Castellini and his son Phil the last time that kind of happened in this sport was in the early 2010s. Bud Selig took control of the Dodgers away from Frank McCourt and his wife, Jamie McCourt, at the time. They were getting divorced. Frank was running the team into the ground. The finances were in question. There was a material breach of ownership duties and responsibilities. Selig felt it necessary to step in. He did. Eventually, the team was sold. The difference here is you can't take away a team for stupidity. If Rob Manfred had that power, 
I dare say the Reds wouldn't be the only team in trouble. I would dare say that the Castellinis are not the only owners who don't act with a high degree of intelligence at all times. So, they're not going to do anything to the Reds. There's really nothing they can do to the Reds. There's nothing that will happen until this team changes ownership. And that's a sad state of affairs. It's a great baseball town, Cincinnati. Reminds me of the place I used to work, Baltimore, St. Louis, mid-level town, city, that is quite passionate about its team. And if Phil Castellini was smart, and yes, I am suggesting he is not smart. If Phil Castellini was smart, what he would have told Rosie Reds, and I guess did to some extent, but not enough. Hey, our general manager, Nick Crawl, he has made a series of really astute trades, at least on appearance, at least from what we know of the prospects he has acquired, and our team is on the way back. Now, we're operating in a difficult system. We all know that. He called it an industry in crisis. I wouldn't suggest an $11 billion industry is an industry in crisis. For some teams, though, it's more difficult than others. We all know this. But Castellini could have sold this team a little bit better than he did. No, make that a lot better than he did. Instead, he chose to make a number of ill-advised comments, and Trent wrote a beautiful article. Well, I can't say it's beautiful. Well-written article. I mean, nobody would call this beautiful. Well-written article, a well-written account of what went down. And he put it all into context, referencing the comments from last opening day, referencing where the Reds are. And again, I, I feel sorry for Reds fans upon reading this and upon hearing this again. It's bad enough that their team is in the middle of a rebuild that might not go anywhere. That's bad enough. And then to hear the team president, the son of the owner, for the second time in nine months, just embarrass himself, not good. So that is yeah. what we started with. Not Brian Reynolds, not Pablo Lopez, not Carlos Correa. No, Phil Castellini, you won the day. You won the day by losing the day. I, if you want to check out that article, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, uh, go to theathletic.com slash baseball show, and you can join right now for $1.99 a month for a year. Uh, and you can read that story and all the other great writing going on at The Athletic. Uh, and with that, Ken, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next time on the show, you can call us 646-543-7072, or you can use the EA, the email, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. All right, our first question, Ken, comes from Jacob. He says, I understand why transfers may not be useful or common in baseball. This relates back to last mailbag where we talked about um, transfers in the soccer world and why they don't have them in baseball. But he says, my question is, why do we not see more trades contingent on contract agreements? If I was Peter Seidler or Steve Cohen and had the opportunity to trade for Otani contingent on coming to a multi-year agreement, I would likely be willing to part with a bit more prospect capital. I'd assume players' agents would enjoy this as well. Obviously, if no contract was agreed to, a team can still work out a traditional trade. Actually, those trades do happen. They don't happen very often, but... From time to time, they do occur. Go back to 2019. The Yankees trade of Sonny Gray to, of all teams, the Cincinnati Reds, back where they were actually trying. 
That deal was contingent on the Reds signing Gray to a contract extension within a 72-hour window. If you go even further back to A-Rod and the Red Sox, remember that? That trade that almost happened? That was a 72-hour window as well. The deal did not happen because they couldn't figure out the money to satisfy the union. There were deferrals, and the union didn't want the contract devalued. But same idea, same thing occurred. Those trades, those kinds of trades, are infrequent at the deadline because if you do that at the deadline, well, you're taking all the other teams out of the equation. There's not much time. You might not have 72 hours, and a team might fear that if the deal doesn't occur, there won't be enough time to regroup and make that trade. Teams generally don't like to do these kinds of trades because it complicates an already complicated situation. And closes off the rest of the suitors. It's just a layer upon an already complex layer of negotiations and talks that are going on. Not out of the question. They do happen. They just don't happen that frequently. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we have another uh, question about trades. This one from Brendan. He says, we've seen an incredible season thus offseason thus far with owners dishing out loads of money to free agents. Most of the top 50 or so free agents all signed before the new year. In contrast, we've seen very, very few trades occur for major league players like we've seen in prior offseasons. Is this a supply issue where few teams want to trade and there's a bumper crop of free agents? Or are teams waiting to sell players hoping to get teams that didn't get the top free agents or pay up in prospects? Or is there something else going on? Actually, there are a few reasons. This is a good question. And it's very natural to wonder, hey, why haven't there been more trades this offseason? One reason is most of the best available talent was in free agency. So teams automatically went to those players who cost, except in the case of a qualified offer player, only money. And even with a qualified offer player, you can just give up a draft pick. It's not the same kind of prospect cost. Draft pick and international bonus pool space. With a trade, again, as I referenced in the earlier question, it's more complicated. It involves prospects or major league players. And the other thing this offseason is that the supply of available players in trade wasn't as sexy, perhaps, as it might have been in other years. If you look at it so far, Sean Murphy was the biggest name traded, perhaps, in the early period. Dalton Varsho, that was a big trade. Diamondbacks to the Blue Jays. Gabriel Moreno, one of the best prospects in the game. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. going back to the Diamondbacks. Those are 
reasonably big names if you follow the sport. But if you don't follow the sport, that's not Nolan Arenado. Of the remaining players, I talked about these two guys in the open. Brian Reynolds, good player. We talked about him in trades for a while. Pablo Lopez, good pitcher. We've talked about him in trades for a while. These are impressive names, solid guys, not superstars. So that's part of it, too. We just haven't seen the kind of Juan Soto-type player become available this offseason that we saw at the deadline. And finally, it's really hard to make a trade. And I referenced this earlier, too, as well. Teams value prospects more highly than ever before. Some would suggest, I would, that they overvalue prospects, and it limits them from making deals. A number of executive decision makers also are, frankly, afraid of getting burned. They don't want to pick up the next day and see on the Internet everyone ripping their trade, which will happen from time to time. There's a certain gun-shy element in the logic of many GMs that perhaps didn't exist as much before the age of social media, before the eruption of media in general covering this sport. So all of these factors combined, to me, are why the trades have not been as active so far. I would say the biggest reason, though, is the lack of star talent available in trades versus what was available in free agency. I mentioned listeners who were unhappy with what their teams have done so far this winter. Let's get into a few of those, and we're going to start with a voicemail. Ken, John in upstate New York. I had a question about the Red Sox. I couldn't understand why there was no activity by the Red Sox when they knew the story was hurt and Correa was still available. Were they ever in the mix for Carlos Correa at the end? Thanks. John Heimblum, their president of baseball operations, did acknowledge that they touched base on Correa and engaged with Scott Boris, Correa's agent, at some level during that time when Story was hurt and Correa was again available. Why it didn't happen, I don't know. They did just commit $331 million to Rafael Devers. That could be part of it, not wanting to have two players at that level on the same team. But... When you see the final deal that Correa signed, six years, $200 million guaranteed, chance to go to 270 if he stays healthy. Well, I wondered why weren't the Red Sox involved? Why weren't other teams involved? Where were the Dodgers on this? It was curious to me. Now, maybe they were all scared off by the medicals and what was going on with Correa. Two teams, remember, did not execute agreements with him because of their concerns over his right ankle. But... Look at the Red Sox right now. What do they need? Middle infielders. They're going to move Kike Hernandez most likely back to the infield, and then they'll need a center fielder. Correa would have been perfect. Correa had the pass connection from Houston with manager Alex Cora. The Red Sox seemingly, or at least said, that they were willing to sign both Devers and Xander Bogarts, so why not Devers and Carlos Correa at a discounted rate? I'm not sure. Yeah, it would have made a lot of sense. Um, all right, Daniel also has some issues with what his team's doing in Cleveland. He says, my question concerns what's seemingly a surplus in Cleveland's farm system. It's no secret they're log-jammed a bit with young talent, and that jam is getting increasingly tighter. It seems to me that they could very well 
use some of that to supplement what they already have. Cleveland is reluctant to move top-tier pitching prospects in deals for names like Sean Murphy, but the longer this goes, the more puzzling it becomes. I expected a trade of some kind to consolidate prospects, middle infielders at the very least, quite some time ago, and it's still not happened. As somebody who likes to think I've got a good handle on what my team's vision is, I'm clearly lost here. What gives? Daniel, you do have a good handle on what's going on, and I'm not sure what gives, because I'm with you. I expected at the very least that the Guardians would have tried to, as you said, consolidate their talent by parting with some level of middle infielder, some number of middle infielders, maybe more than one. They are very deep in that area. They've got at the major league level Jimenez and Rosario. They've got kids coming, Gabriel Arias, others. And they really are in position to do that, especially at a time when so many teams need shortstops. The Red Sox still need a shortstop. Other teams as well. I'm not sure what they're thinking is. I will tell you this. It is not a knock on the Guardians, but it is what I hear consistently from other teams around the league. That the Guardians front office is difficult to deal with. Not that they're not willing to talk or even engaging. It's more they set a value on their prospects. It's generally a high value, and then they don't come off that value that they assign. That's very fair of them to do. They have... (laughs) Every right to do that. Other teams do the same. But you will hear from teams, ah, man, the Guardians, it's painful. (laughs) You can't get anything out of them. It takes forever, et cetera, et cetera. That said, they still have this glut. They even have pretty good depth in other areas as well. And I expect at some point they are going to make a consolidation-type trade. It might not be before opening day. I would Guess now it's not going to be before opening day. But at the deadline, they'll be in a really good position to address whatever it is that they want to address. And at that point, if you're the Guardians in their defense, you'll have even more information on your prospects and which ones you think are closest to the majors, which ones you think will be longtime contributors to the Cleveland organization. Yeah, give them a little more time, I guess, before you, you quit on them at this point. Uh, Josh says the Marlins have a treasure chest of pitchers. Why has there been no trades yet? Can you provide some insight? Who is most likely to go and a best trade partner? Well, it looks like Lopez is the guy that's going to go. Pablo Lopez, quality major league pitcher, 3.75 ERA in 180 innings last year. He's the kind of guy you want on your team. Is he a top-end rotation guy? No. But I put him in the middle, and I'd be very comfortable with that. Again, I wrote today about the Cardinals, why he fits for them. The Twins have also been interested in Pablo Lopez. Luis Arias has come up. My understanding is the Marlins would prefer a bigger bat to a guy like Arias, who I love and who is not a big bat per se in terms of power. But my gosh, there are very, very, very few players who can do what he does with his contact ability high batting average, just all the things that Luis Arias brings. So I do expect Lopez is going to go at some point. And we'll see what the Marlins get here. But actually, they've played this just fine because the free agents had to come off the board first from DeGrom on down. And now you have teams that still want starting pitching and there is not much left on the open market. They have to turn to trades. So we'll see where it goes. 
I did like the trade they made, Miguel Rojas, for Jacob Amaya. Jacob Amaya is a great defender, young kid, prospect, who has not shown much promise with the bat. Miguel Rojas, of course, is an established player, but he's not going to be with the Marlins by the time they are really ready to contend. You could argue that they should be ready to contend with the pitching that they have this season, but in that division, it's probably not going to happen. They're going to need more offense. They need a center fielder so badly. But at the same time, they're also emphasizing defense because in their thought, they believe that to win in the NL East when you have powerhouse offenses with the Mets, Phillies, and Braves, you're going to need to catch the ball to support your pitching. So they want to be a pitching and defense team knowing that they clearly need more offense as well. The World Baseball Classic is back this spring, and Vinny has a question about that. He says, with the WBC coming up, do you see teams preventing their top players from participating in the future? If you're the Mets, I can't imagine you're thrilled that Edwin Diaz will likely be throwing 100% effort in the first week of March after signing a nine-figure contract. The Mets are an extreme case with so many participants, but every team is exposed in some way in the event their top pitcher or an all-star position player could be injured. Very good point. But let's not forget what the WBC is, what it was designed to do originally, and that's to promote the sport. It's a promotional vehicle for Major League Baseball. It is something that the league helps will grow the game, not just domestically but internationally. It's a fun event. It's one of the most fun things that I cover, to be perfectly honest. So that's the intent of the WBC, and teams are strongly encouraged to allow their players to play and a number of players want to play for their countries. Certainly, there is always this tension, especially with pitchers, about what teams will allow them to do, whether they will allow them to participate at all, and if they do participate, how much can they be used? That tension has been there since the start of the WBC. It will always be there. And it's true to a certain extent with position players as well. Now, when you have a guy coming off an injury, a team is going to be even more reluctant to let that player participate and expose himself to high competition in mid-March when, of course, that player probably should be getting ready still and working himself back into shape. Joel Sherman, my friend and a great, great writer for the New York Post, had an interesting column just over the weekend about the Mets situation. And the Mets are in a more difficult situation than most. Joel points out they've got two outfielders who likely will go, Marte and Nemo, three relievers, Diaz, Adovino, and Brooks Raley, two ca- a catcher, I'm sorry, one catcher, Omar Navarez, two starting pitchers, Carrasco and Quintana, and the entire infield, Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, Francisco Lindor, and Eduardo Escobar are all going to play for their countries in the WBC, and this is coming at a time when new rules are being implemented. For pitchers, the pitch clock, something that they're going to have to adjust to. And for infielders, obviously, the shift restrictions. One middle infielder must be on each side of second base and standing on the dirt. This is going to take an adjustment. You would want, ideally, a full spring to get all the kinks out and make sure the players are fully aware of what's going on, allow them to adjust to these rules And Buck Showalter, as you might imagine, is sort of freaking out about all this. (laughs) That said, 
all teams kind of face the same circumstance, not to the same extent as the Mets, perhaps, but they are going to lose players to the WBC. And I would suggest for the greater good of the sport, it's okay. Yes, some teams are going to have maybe a longer adjustment period at the start of the season because so many players are missing. But again, the WBC is a big deal. It is a joint venture of the union and MLB. This is not a unilateral type event. And once you see these games again, and we haven't seen them in a while, I think people will be really fascinated and captivated by what's going on in the field. And that is most important, even more important for the greater good. Again, not your individual team, the greater good than each individual circumstance. Definitely more exciting than spring training baseball. That is for sure. Correct. Uh, Harry's next. He says, my question is, given the trend of teams handing out 10 and 11-year contracts, what would happen to Shohei Otani at the end of such a deal, given his unorthodox career so far? Do you think he might shift over to another position, say first, third, or even the outfield? Or is he likely to age into simply being a DH? Harry, we are all wondering about the future of Shohei Otani. And frankly... I'm wondering about it simply from the standpoint of baseball, forgetting even the contract. The question I have, the question so many people have is, how long can he continue to be an everyday major league player from an offensive standpoint and a pitcher in a starting rotation, even a six-man rotation? He's done it now twice in a row, two years consecutively, at an extremely high level. Both years he could have been MVP of the league. He was one time the MVP, the other time... Second, it's amazing what he's done. I, I, we talk about this a lot, and I'll say it again. We don't talk about it enough. We don't have a full appreciation of what this guy is accomplishing. It's incredible. The question is, how long can he do it for? And to get to your point, Harry, the real question is, how do you even put together a contract for this player not knowing how long he'll be able to keep this up? Is he a $30 million player as a hitter alone or as a pitcher alone? $30 million per year. The answer probably would be yes, right? Now, if he's doing both, then what is he? I don't know the answer to that. Is he $50 million a year? Is he $60 million a year? Is he $40 million a year? I don't know. And I don't know how to structure it in a way that would account for all of the possibilities involved with this player. You could do it with incentives, certainly. And you could say if he pitches this number of innings, he gets this. But it's complicated. And it's going to be quite interesting next offseason, assuming it gets to that, to see where this all goes. And people have asked me, where do you think he's going? The Mets certainly are going to be willing to spend. We know that. The Dodgers have been pointing toward Otani. It's one reason, one of several that they took a little bit of a step back this offseason, haven't spent as much. And then there were the Angels. Now, the Angels are for sale, but let's say they are sold by opening day. Let's say, for example, their new owner is from Japan. Or, forget that, let's say the new owner is just some rich guy in the U.S. And he says, you know what, I'm keeping Shohei Otani and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that happen to make that happen, then the Angels are a factor as well, and other teams could enter the mix. 
we don't really know if Shohei Otani wants to be in a bright lights, big city environment. Anaheim is not that. It's a comfortable place to play, maybe even too comfortable in certain respects. Maybe that's what Shohei Otani ultimately wants. We don't know. But all of these questions are going to be so interesting when they become relevant next offseason. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, one last question, and it is uh, accounting, uh, I guess. <laughs> Adam says, I'm curious to know how deferred salaries, player retirements, and salaries owed to release players affect luxury tax calculations. Follow up to that, if deferred payments do not count towards luxury tax, would you expect to see some more contracts with deferred money to avoid hitting tax thresholds? The answer to that is not that complicated. The luxury tax calculations are based on the AAVs of current contracts, and it's within the actual terms for each season. What I mean by that is deferrals don't figure into it. So, for instance, when Max Scherzer signed a seven-year, $210 million free agent contract with the Nationals some years ago and deferred half of it, what counted against the Nationals' luxury tax equation was not $15 million a year for 14 years, which was the way the contract was structured, it was the way it was presented. Seven years, $210 million, $30 million a year hit on the luxury tax. So deferrals mean nothing when it comes to the luxury tax calculation. Release players, good question, but the team still must pay the entire amount. One interesting player that we can consider right now in this regard is Trevor Bauer. Now the Dodgers are going to get charged for Bauer's salary with the luxury tax, as they normally would if he was playing for them. Now that he's released, he's still their responsibility, just as it's still their responsibility to pay him. That's why it's like that. I have put in a question to Major League Baseball because I'm not sure exactly what that number is going to be. The luxury tax salary is generally based on the average annual value of a player's contract, but Bauer's contract was reduced by his 194-game suspension, the docked pay, all of that. So somewhere in the $22 million range is where I expect that luxury tax hit to be. 
but I'm not exactly sure where it is. But the bottom line is, the point is, that if a team releases a player, they don't get an escape from the luxury tax number. Think about it. If that was the case, the Braves would say goodbye to Marcelo Zuna right now and get rid of the luxury tax number that they are assigned with him and be very happy about it. They can't do that. All right, great variation of questions this week. Um, great questions, as always. If you want to get involved down the road, the number 646-543-7072, or you can email Show at gmail.com. Up next on this feed this week, we'll have the roundtable coming up on Wednesday and then DVR and Law on Friday. So three episodes this week. We'll be going at this current cadence until uh, opening day, and then we'll crank things back up to five episodes a week so uh check it out come back all week long i mentioned it earlier in the show dollar 99 a month for 12 months go to the athletic.com slash baseball show to get that great deal and check out our youtube page as well youtube.com slash at symbol the athletic baseball show hey ken have a great week you too tim thanks a lot all right we'll talk to everybody soon